going to answer is about the pastor. Now he's just a young man. How old are you now? 42. Had to think about that. Uh, his question is, what challenges did you face starting in the ministry so young? Again, what challenges did you face starting in the ministry so young? The other part, and how did you pastor your own generation and engage the older generation? Here we go. Well, I feel slightly inadequate. I've had no visions, no dreams, no nightmares, only sound sleep. Amen. So I, I hope this comes out okay. Uh, Jeremiah, uh, well, let's see, let's go to, uh, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Man, I sure enjoyed Brother Farley's uh, questions, and hearing those answers, it challenged me. And uh, I told the Lord, I said, Lord, I think I'm already doing all I can, and he informed me that I wasn't. So I like that, Amen. Well, uh, pastoring's a challenge. I don't know if you ever realized that or not, but it's a challenge no matter what age you're at, I suppose. But God did bless me being raised in a Christian home and getting saved at a very young age, and I've given that testimony already, so I won't take a lot of time to uh, give that to you again. But I, I, I was raised in church, and uh, a lot of the things of the ministry I, I did growing up. You know, my dad, I thank God for my dad. He... Uh, he's a godly example. And, uh, you know, even still in the maritime provinces on the East Coast, my dad is the one that people look to. And uh, he's been such a good example. And most of you know he had that accident. And even since then, he has not slowed down. Amen. And so I thank God for my dad. Uh, there probably, other than our Christian school, as a kid, there was not a single ministry in our church that his hands were not in. And that's the way I was raised. Uh, I was raised, uh, you know, going uh, to King Square at the age uh, of 10 years old, preaching at King Square. We used to get those fellowship track league tracks and hold them on the front of our Bible and lift up our Bible and say, the Bible says, you know. And we did that from in, just in our childhood and, you know, uh, all the way through. And the, and, the, and the buses, my dad ran the buses and, and organized. I, I think he was probably the only bus captain in our church that actually went on bus visitation like he was supposed to. Amen. He did it. He did it. And uh, he took us to homeless shelters and mission rescue works. And I remember going into the, and I was raised in church, so I remember going into those places and, wow, this is uh, not the world I live in. But I was glad for the exposure to those things. Amen. And uh, we'd go to the nursing homes and dad ran the nursing home ministries. If we were in a nursing home, he was running it, and it was, it was just such a blessing uh, to be raised that way. And then in 1996, God called my dad to go to Bridgewater, Nova Scotia, and started Blessed Hope Baptist Church. And by the time I got there, and we all got there, I already had a good footing in what work, the work of the ministry was, I guess. And, uh, you know, the Bible says that he gives us pastors and teachers and these things, and one of the things that he gives them for is the work of the ministry, it was some of the other things that I had a bit of a struggle with, amen, but I knew the work of the ministry, and I'm, I'm so thankful for that, and it wasn't long before Dad, you know, when you're a small work, I mean, I think we had, I think we had about 13 people in the basement of a house, 
And uh, that's where we started. And, and so we're there in the basement of that house, and he needed a song leader. My dad was not a song leader. That was one thing he didn't do. And, uh, and so, you know, at, at the young age, I started leading singing. And, you know, I still can't read music to this day. But what I know, I, I can get some timing, and I learn some song leading patterns. In fact, I was reminded the other day, there was a man who used to have a ministry doing that. David Armistead was his name, and he used to try. Did you ever know him? No, he used to travel around and teach song leading and teach people how to sing. And so I remember going to, to several of those classes and learning those three basic time signatures that you can pretty much lead any song with. And man, it was just a tremendous help. And so I started song leading and then we had some young people there and, and you know, somebody needed to organize some things for the young people. And so dad said, well, why don't you do it, son? Why don't you just organize? Uh, one thing I learned from my dad is that whatever we wanted to do for the Lord, he enabled it. He enabled whatever we wanted to do for the Lord. And so I started, you know, uh, uh, leading some youth activities. And then, you know, we moved from that basement into a storefront and from a storefront into a building that God had given to us, two church vans. And all of a sudden I'm teaching Sunday school, leading the singing, mowing the lawns and doing all those things. And I remember saying, hmm, I'm doing all those things that dad used to do. Amen. And that was a blessing to me, amen? And thank God I knew how to do some of those things, praise the Lord. And so, you know, my dad, when we were in our church in New Brunswick, he started a little youth ministry and we would sing and we were not good singers. It was so bad. And we thought we were better than what we were. And you wouldn't believe it. Dad said, we want you to practice these. And man, Brother Dave, we thought we were good. But now I look back and listen to those <laughs> recordings, and it was horrible. But what we would do is we would, uh, we would practice all these songs, and there was a few of us that were called to preach, and so, so uh, we would rent these community halls, and then we'd make up these flyers, and we'd go a, a week before, two weeks before, and we'd cover the whole town with these flyers, and then we'd try and get them to come, and people came. That was a miracle. You know, people actually in those days, they weren't so infiltrated with media. They were still looking for some source of entertainment. And so we'd lure them in with the music. And that's one of the places we cut our teeth preaching. And, and Dad organized all that. And he enabled all I remember him telling the story of how he went to my grandfather so he could buy a sound system. so that we. And my grandfather, he was not into that stuff. He was our pastor and he was not into that stuff. But if Dad asked for it, he did it. And so we got that, and we'd go around, and we'd do all that. And so that worked good then. I thought, you know what? Here we are over here in Nova Scotia, and we got a lot of young people. Let's try it again. And God gave us, it's a long story, but God gave us a church building. And that church building had two church vans that went with it. And so we started loading up those church vans. We got us a sound system. We made up some flyers, and we started. And all of those things, I'm just saying my dad really prepared me well. And uh, you may not be a preacher, but a dad is going to be the best one to prepare his son for serving the Lord. Amen. And he did that. And so in, um, in 2005, actually, uh, as the story goes, in June of 2005, I was going to fill a pulpit. The pulpit just happened to be the church I'm pastoring right now. They had been about two years with no pastor. 
And uh, I had been filling the pulpit there off and on. And that morning, particularly as we were going there, I fell asleep at the wheel. And my wife was with me, and Owen, he was just a baby. And we hit a guardrail going 100 kilometers an hour on the opposite side of the highway and ramped up over that thing and down into the ditch we went. And uh, we were on our way to preach there. And little did I know, uh, we, none of us got hurt, praise the Lord. Owen, it was in the car seat sleeping. He didn't even wake up. And, uh, and, and he was just uh, sleeping away. And I think Leanne had a little bit of a fat lip. And, you know, we were a little sore from the seatbelt. That was it. And we finally made it there for church. Well, it was at that service that they told us that they were going to pay for us to come to this meeting. They wanted us to come out to this meeting right here in 2005. And so we did. And that was, they, they paid for our plane. I don't remember all the details of that, but I know that they, they paid for our plane tickets and we came out and Pastor Carlson was very gracious in the church here. And uh, that was the last time that we were here. And this is the place that God used to call me to go specifically to go to Amazing Grace Baptist Church. And, uh, and so in 2000 and, um, 2005, October 2nd was the first Sunday of 2000. 2005, we went there, and uh, that's, uh, that'll be 18 years ago, this coming October. And uh, I'll tell you, I was young. Our Bible Institute that we had, I mean, my dad was doing everything. And the Bible Institute that we had, he did a good job teaching us the Bible and just mentoring us and trying to help us along. But it really did not prepare me for pastoring. And I had some difficulties. But you know what? In 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, you know this verse. The Bible says, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And I know you probably can't believe this, but with me, it's what you see is what you get. There's no secrets. There's no hiding. There's no pretenses, I'm not trying to figure you out, and all, you know, I don't think too deeply into situations. It's, this is what you get, amen? And I was bold enough to believe that, you know what, God called me to do something, God had given me direction to do it, and I'm just going to go in there, and I'm not going to let them despise my youth. May not have been the best approach in every uh, area, and uh, the Lord taught me that when everybody started to leave, amen? But, um, you know, as things went along, I realized, you know, it was funny when Brother Farley was talking about, you know, the roofer and the treasurer and the pastor. And uh, there was things that had, that had taken place there, and it was a very similar situation. And, uh, and so, one by one, God just started. But the problem was, it wasn't a really big church to start with. And as people started leaving, it kind of left us with my cousin, his wife, and a few children, and a few single men. And that's what we ended up with about a year and a half into my being there at Amazing Grace Baptist Church. And God used that to teach me some things about starting in the ministry young, pastoring my own generation, which my own generation in our church consisted of, at the beginning, consisted of my cousin Andy. Now, we grew up together. I was the annoying younger cousin that was always tagging along and trying to be involved and trying to be, you know, the one and all that. You know, that annoying person. That's who I was to him growing up. And now I was his pastor. 
Not only his pastor, but it is Nova Scotia, so I think you'll understand when I say he was my first cousin on my mother's side, and he married my first cousin on my father's side. It, it's a peninsula, okay? And so I was pastoring not only my own generation, but my family. And then a few single men. And, and it was difficult. And so I, I just I want to give you this morning the things that I tried to do. And, and I'll tell you what, it took a lot of counsel. It took a lot of prayer. It was in those times, really, that I learned what it was to pray through a situation. Amen. You know, when you grow up in church, a lot of times you go through on the prayers of your parents. You go through on the prayers of your pastor. You go through on what your church is doing. But then when you're a young man and you're a pastor and everybody's looking to you, you're going to have to learn how to pray through. Amen. You're going to have to learn something for yourself. And it, it was the school of hard knocks, I'll tell you. Amen. But there are some things that, I, that God led me as in some directions, and I'm thankful for them, and they, and they still help me to this day. Amen. Let me give you a few things that, that I tried to do by God's grace that the Lord instructed me. You know, as we had that little small congregation, we we're trying to grow. The first thing that I realized quickly was to avoid generation gaps. Avoid generation gaps. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, most churches you go to, they have a young people's group and they have ministry for the children. And they, Man, if we divided our little church up, We'd had one person in each class. You got seniors and college and careers and this and this. And I said, oh, what are we going to do? You know, I can't have a youth group. I can't have a this. I can't have a that. And so the Lord just said, you know what? Just do everything together. Just do everything together. And, uh, you know, whatever, what, if it's children, children, you want to focus on the children, focus on the children, but invite everybody. And so as we started to grow and people started to get saved and, you know, families started coming to the church, they were amazed at the family atmosphere that was there in our church because we did everything together. We didn't even have children's Sunday schools at that time. Now we have children. You know, as you grow, the necessity, you know, it becomes a necessity to, have, you know, do things a little bit differently. But we still make sure that we have a lot of things. In fact, one consistent attendee to every youth function that we have is a 76-year-old man, Jerry Pablo. Jerry comes and Jerry plays soccer with the kids and Jerry plays volleyball with the kids and Jerry makes a nuisance of himself to the kids and that's exactly what he's supposed to do. But you know what? They can't imagine a youth function without him. Amen. He goes everywhere with them. He encourages them. He'll pat them on the back. I was reminded of that with Brother Goble yesterday. There was a young lady that she needed a partner. Amen. I couldn't believe this. Fight. He gets out there. And I, what, was it them that had a better time than us? I'm not sure. But I, <laughs> there was a few girls teams that had a better time than us. But I'm telling you what, yes, the, in that rickshaw race, my son pushed me one way and pulled me the other. I'm telling you, it was, Wow. Or I guess it was uh, uh, Justin was pushing me one way and then, man, I, I was just trying to keep my legs underneath me. Amen. But I learned the value of, of avoiding generation gaps. Amen. That helped me a lot to pastor not only 
uh, my family and those of my own generation, but also the older generation. We just included everybody in everything. We didn't have enough people to divide everybody up and section everybody off, amen? We built our fellowship together. And there were times we did more kid things. And there were times we did more adult things. And, I, you know, I really think that we learned from each other and all that, amen? We even had family Sunday school. We didn't have kids. We had family Sunday school. And uh, you know what we did for that? We, um, we had a brother in the church. It was actually Jonathan's dad who started it. He started Pilgrim's Progress. And, you know, every Sunday he'd come in and he was Christian. And he would tell everybody about the adventures that he had gone through that past week. I mean, he went to Calvary, and he went to the Slough of Despond, and he, everywhere he went, he'd come in with that sack over, and he'd tell the story. And man, everybody loved that. The kids loved that. The adults loved We all loved that. And you know, just imagine sitting there with your children and say, hey, Johnny, you know, look at that. I ate it with something else. Those are some of the best memories. You know, people still talk about that. Avoid generation gaps, Amen. You know, the other thing that God, uh, God helped me to do, and, and you know, I, I don't mind, I like being around people, amen? I also like my own private time, amen? But you know what I did learn? To shower God's people with affection. Shower God's people with affection. You know, I'll be honest with you, I didn't have a lot of, I knew the work of the ministry, but you were looking at a 24-year-old, and if uh, boy, I'll tell you, really close to a novice. Green behind the ears. You know, all this passion, all this zeal, but not a whole lot of knowledge in how to employ it. Amen? And one thing I learned really quick is that people will stick with you through the thick and thin if they know you love them. Amen. When you go, you know, the modern version Bibles, they go over there to 1 Corinthians and they turn that thing into the love chapter. It's not. It's the charity chapter. See, charity is a love that the world can't understand. Amen. The world, you know, when it talks about charity never faileth, love does fail. Love does fail. Well, that's the bell already. Wow. Okay, let me give you these other things. Uh, but shower people with affection. Amen. Give them love. Amen. And then I, the third thing that God gave me was don't assign my responsibility to other people. You know, I know everybody has different administrations, and I'm perfectly fine with that. But you know what God taught me? I'm the pastor. And not just the preacher. Not just the preacher. I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to pastor the children. I'm supposed to pastor the young people. I'm supposed to pastor the parents and the old people. I'm the pastor. You know what God laid on my heart? No youth pastor. That's just what the Lord laid on my heart. Why? I'm their pastor. Now, we have a family in our church. They help organize youth activities, and they do all this. But you know who's always there? Me. On the first Wednesday night of the month, we have a kids program. You know who teaches it? Me. I give the pulpit to another man in the church, and I go down there with the kids. Why? I want them to know their pastor loves them. I don't want to assign my responsibility to anybody else. Amen? Then remember the privilege of pastoring. It is a privilege to be a pastor. You know, in Jeremiah 10, 20, he said, for the pastors are become brutish. You know what brutish is? Insensible, stupid. I understand that language. Amen? I don't ever want to become a brutish pastor where you're just bowling everybody over and, and you know, remember the privilege that we have to have people sit there while we ramble on Sunday after Sunday trying to help them grow in the Lord. Amen? 
And then never forget to take your direction from the Lord. Amen. You can use talent. You can use your organizational skills. You can make a whole lot of noise. Amen. But God helped me to remember to always take my direction from Him, even if it's unpopular. The sixth thing was always exercise grace and truth. You know, most young men, they're law, 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 law. And I was a lot of that. But I learned to have grace. Amen. And then finally, don't ever lord it over God's heritage. Amen. Man, don't ever... The Bible says in 1 Peter 5.3, neither is being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples of the flock. And you know a church is going to take on the character of their pastor. Our church, you would probably be surprised by this, our church is a loud church. Our, our church is a busy church. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but I have to realize that they are going to take on the characteristics that I have. Amen? And so, you can't ever lord things over God's heritage. Amen? You don't always want to force people into being in your mold. Amen? Just God. Let God direct them. Let God lead them. Amen? Those are the things God used to help me pastor my own generation and those older. Conflicts. The question is, how should we go about resolving conflicts with brothers and sisters in Christ within the local church. Again, how should we go about resolving conflicts with brothers and sisters in Christ within the local church? Please turn in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. This is a whole different kind of beast right here. Answering questions, trying to do it in just a few minutes. Matthew chapter 18 talking about reconciling. Of course, you know, if you've been in church any length of time, that you're going to have conflict with people. <clears throat> My pastor used to say, if it weren't for the people, there'd be no problem. <laughs> but if it weren't for the people, there'd be no ministry. And so there are going to be people that are going to annoy you. Uh, there are going to be people you don't like to be around. There are going to be people that talk too much. There are going to be people that don't talk enough. There are going to be people that, be people that you wish didn't talk. Uh, there's going to be all sorts of people in your local congregation, and sometimes you're going to butt heads. Uh, it's impossible to think that you butt heads at home, but then you're going to come to church, and everybody's going to be on the same page all the time, and everybody's going to make you happy and feel good. It's impossible. And Matthew chapter 18, really, this whole chapter, but I'm just going to deal with a certain part of it. But the first 14 verses talk about the presence of offenses. And let, let me just start by saying this, okay? We're talking about how to reconcile conflict between people. But the first step is, try your best not to cause any, okay? Um, just because somebody says something that you disagree with doesn't mean you have to respond. Your opinion is not as important as you think your opinion is. And in all honesty, all that matters is what God thinks. Everything else, we don't care, Right? So somebody comes in and said, you know, I, hey, I ate at this restaurant. It was, it was really good. Well, I ate at that restaurant. It was bad. Who cares? Why are you going to fight over stuff? It doesn't matter. So the first thing I would tell you is stop offending people. You don't always have to speak, okay? And that's true for me, too. <coughs> I, 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 people say stuff at church all the time. I just let it go. Now, in my head, I don't. Okay, in my head, I think, well, that was dumb, you know. 
but I'm not going to tell them. You say, well, you should always tell people. No, I don't think God made me to be on this earth to fix everybody's problems. And sometimes they're right and I'm wrong. Okay, so the first thing is stop offending people. That'd be a good start. But now what, what I'm dealing with is there's already an offense. Okay, I'm just giving you the, the way to stop it before it ever happens. But look at verse number 15, okay. The Bible says, uh, moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him. What's that? I, I've bolded this word in my Bible. Alone. Okay. Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Okay. So the first thing, and this is where most people fail, especially today, we have social media, we've got, you know, telephones, we've got email, we've got all this stuff. Most people today have a problem or a conflict with somebody and they go tell somebody else. You are now the problem. And I'm, I'm not going to speak like a southerner today. I'm going to speak like a northerner. Okay. You need to shut your mouth. You really do. If you're not willing to go to the person that you have a problem with alone and say, now listen, I, I'm very careful about this for me personally because we live in a, in, a, in a crazy world. If it is a woman that has offended a man, well, that's a little awkward. But if a, if a man has offended a woman, I, I, I would say at that point, a man and a woman that are not married should not be trying to resolve a conflict with each other alone. Because now you're creating a bigger conflict, Okay. For testimony's sake, I would say not do that. But here's what the Bible says. You need to go to that person, not go to Facebook, not pick up your phone and call somebody or text somebody about it. It says you go to that person and that person alone and you say, hey, would you mind if we sit down and talk about this? Because you know what? The person might not even know that he or she did something offensive. That's probably the story of my life. People say, well, you offended me. And I said, well, what did I do? Well, the way you looked. Okay, well, I don't have any control over that. You know, I'm sorry. And I, I really, I mean, I, I hate making people mad. I don't like it. Uh, there's not a bone in my body likes conflict. And so you, you need to go to somebody and they may say, that person may say, well, I, I'm so sorry. I had no idea that I did that to you. Yeah. Or, hey, I, that day I was, man, I was sick. I came to church anyway. I was feeling rough. And, and you can have grace with people. But if you go and spread it before you talk to the individual and give that, give that individual a chance to say, I'm sorry, uh, then, then you're creating a bigger problem. Now, hold your place here because this is where we're going to focus most. But go to, go to Luke chapter 17 because this is so important for where we're headed. Because here's what I hear all the time. I mean, all the time when, and, and this got me in so much trouble just trying to do the right thing. I've had people in our church mad at each other and they come to me. And I say, uh, say, look, if you've got a problem with brother such and such, go to him. Okay? Don't bring me into it, moment number one. I'm, I'm, I'm a few steps down the road. Okay? Go fix it. You, and you say, well, that's not good. You're just trying to shun your responsibility. No, I'm trying to help them t take their responsibility. I don't want to pastor babies my whole life. I'm, I don't want to run a babysitting daycare. I want people to grow up. If you've got a problem with somebody, go fix the problem. You should never, this is, just, uh, this is just my opinion, okay, you can take it or leave it. You should actually never need the pastor. 
to fix a problem that you have with somebody else in the church. If all goes well, the pastor, somebody says, oh, well, did you hear? No. Oh, don't worry, it's fixed. Well, praise the Lord. Because you want your pastor focused on studying the scripture and praying, and you don't want his mind polluted with all your problems when he comes up here to preach. You want him to be able to preach with liberty and God take the word and say, wow, that's, he doesn't even know, but he's helping me. That's one of the reasons why we like to have visiting preachers come in because they don't know everything that's going on. And if they say something, the, the congregation says, wow. Well, usually the first thing they say is the pastor told them. Okay. But, but then eventually they think, wow, God's, God's doing something right here. This man has no idea what I'm going through and God's helping me. So I need you to see this in Luke chapter 17, verse number four. The Bible says, and if he trespass against thee seven times in a day and seven times again uh, and seven times in a day turn again to thee saying saying I repent I repent thou shalt forgive him now I just got to be honest with you if somebody does something to me seven times in one day and says I repent okay time number one I might believe you time number two uh, you know, what is a, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. You've, you have done this to me seven times today. And seven times you said, oops, I'm sorry. Now, see, here's what people do. They say, well, if I see that he repents, stop it. Stop it right there. You're not God. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says if he comes to you and says... I repent. You have to trust that he does. People say, well, I'm waiting for the fruit to see if he's really sorry. <laughs> You're always going to find reasons why he's not. And this will fix your marriage. This will fix your problems in the meeting house. Okay? If somebody says, I'm, I repent, they don't even have to say, come on, let's not be picky. Well, he didn't use the word repent. Come on, if somebody, and I've learned this, I, I don't want to embarrass my wife. My wife has a really, really, really hard time with the word sorry. Okay, she, she it, it, for whatever reason, maybe when she was a child, maybe her dad hit her across the face when she said sorry. So she, she struggles to say that word. So I, as a husband, I love my wife. I am not going to fight with her because she's afraid to use that word. You understand that? I know that if she starts talking to me again, that means I'm sorry. I'm serious. It's true. You all are laughing because it, it, this is real life stuff. So I'm not going to hold, and I'm not trying to say every time we have a problem it's her fault. I promise that's not what I'm trying to say. If it came out that way, I, I'm sorry, okay? I don't have any trouble. I'm, I'm good at this. Sorry. I am so sorry. I am very, very sorry. I'm good at that, okay? Her, not so much. And everybody in the family knows it, okay? And you just deal with it. I'm not going to try to keep a fight going because she doesn't use the word that I really want to hear. And we shouldn't be that way with each other. So that person didn't say, I'm sorry, Okay, you're going to have to try, try harder to get along than you do to keep the fight going. 
You need to be, I mean, the Bible talks about our God. You know what it says? He's ready to forgive. It's like God's just waiting. Oh, I want the chance. I can't wait. I want the chance to forgive somebody. And you know what we're doing? I am so ready to hold a grudge. God forgive us. So if, if somebody offends you, okay, whether it's in your home or in the meeting house, go to that person alone and just say, hey, can I talk to you for a moment? This was really offensive to me. And you know what? Sometimes the answer is you just need to suffer yourself to be defrauded. You just got to get over it. But sometimes you need to help somebody by saying, that was offensive. You said this and, and because you might be helping the person. You don't need to say that again, right? So you go to the person alone and you say, hey, I need you to hear me out. If the person hears you, it's over. Move on with your life. But then the Bible says, okay, look, if, if, if that doesn't work, if the person says, I don't care what you think, you're wicked, you know, and, and now here we are, we're going to continue this fight. In verse number 15, uh, or verse number 16, but if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So now we're going to take this up a notch, okay? Now I'm going to take somebody else, and it's not about I want to get a couple people that are going to be on my side. If, you're, if you have wisdom, you're going to take a couple of people that are going to hear out both sides and help you in this conflict. This still not going to Facebook. You understand? This is still not calling everybody in the church and say, well, I just want to, I, I want to give you this information so you can get on my side. In fact, the right thing might be to say, hey, I need to meet with brother such and such. Would you and you join me for the meeting and not even give them the details? Just to let them hear out the conflict and let them say, you know what, brother, I'm hearing all this out. And I, I got to be honest with you, you might be overreacting. And if that's the case, okay, you know what, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, okay? And so the Bible says the next step is, now we're going to take one or two people with us and, and because we want this to be established. We want to, okay, what, what this person's saying, what this person's saying, and really these two people are here, spiritual people, to restore and reconcile this friendship, this, these brothers in Christ or these sisters in Christ, and say, all right, let's get this fixed because we can't, do what we need to do for God when we're fighting each other. Let me just throw this in there. I think when Christians get bored, they start fighting each other. When Christians are right with God, they are fighting together against the devil. You understand? So if you're right with God, you're fighting with each other against a common foe, the enemy, Satan. If you're bored in your Christianity and you're not right with God, the swords start turning on each other. God never intended that. In fact, he intended that every person in this room, if you're saved, you'd be willing to die for any other saved person in this room. That's what God intended. Not kill, die for. Okay? 
Now, verse number 17, the Bible says, and if he shall neglect to hear them. So the idea is, okay, we had our first you know, meeting, me and the person alone, and we were trying to get this reconciled, and, and the person rejected, and didn't say, I, you know, I'm sorry, or I repent, or whatever words you're looking for, or just say, brother, I had no idea, you know, please forgive me. Whatever, okay? You're looking for reasons to forgive, not looking for reasons to hold grudges. If the person hears you, wash your hands of it, praise the Lord, if you need to, hug it out, we're done. Let's go forward together. If the person rejects that, now I'm taking, okay, well now I'm going to step it up a little bit. We're going to take maybe one or two more people so that we can get witnesses, so that the word can be established. And now the person hears me, okay, praise the Lord, hug it out, forgive, move on. The person doesn't hear you, now we've got another step. Verse number 17 the Bible says, and if he shall neglect to hear them, them. So now it's not just you. Now it is two other witnesses that say, brother, that's, this, is, this is a problem. This is a sin. This is ungodly. You've got to get this fixed. And if he shall neglect to hear them, then the Bible says, tell it unto the church. Do you hear that? Only at this point. Guys, the, uh, here's what I would advise. If you, this, and this sounds so horrible. It really does. I, I, I don't even want to say it because it sounds like I'm a compromiser. The best thing we should do is first try to keep private sins private. Don't, don't become one of these people that's looking for sins in people's lives to expose to the world. It may make you feel holy, but it does great damage to the cause of Christ. And if you, can, if you can resolve a sin in private and get the person to repent and do right, or even say, look, I struggle with that and I'm sorry. I mean, guys, you would be, you'd be shocked what the people in this building struggle with. It would embarrass all of us. It would. And so you need to learn to be gracious with people. And if somebody says, yes, you're right, I've got a problem. I look at stuff on my phone I shouldn't look at. Okay, brother, what can I do to help you? How can I be an accountability partner with you to help you? I'm not looking to bury you. I'm not looking to go to the church and tell the church your sin. I'm looking to restore you. That's what we ought to be doing if we love each other. I said it the other day, charity cover the multitude of sins. It's not talking about we just sweep it under the rugs, but it's saying I'm not going to go trying to make, make you look like a devil to the rest of the people. Amen. There are multiple steps to deal with people before you get to a place where you have to go to the church and say, we have a problem. And then verse number 17 says, once you've now told it to the church, if the person repents, and we've had to do this at our church. We've had people get up and apologize to the church. And I have told our church, don't you dare crucify people who have to do that. The Bible says we should actually fear because if it's not for the grace of God, we could be in the same boat. It wasn't long ago we had a, a man in our church had to get up in front of the church and apologize about some things. And you know what, what just really blessed my heart after that man got up and, and ex exposed some stuff? Men were coming up, hugging him. L ladies were coming up saying, well, we're praying for you. 
That's the way a body of believers ought to be. He, he heard. Do you understand? He heard. He says, I repent. It's over. We can't keep dealing with this unless he keeps doing the sin. So verse number 17, it says, but if he neglect to hear the church. This is where none of us want to get. The Bible says, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. There are times you have to remove people from your assembly. But we don't run there. You see all the, the obstacles and all the things that God gave us to fix it before we get to that point. You see that? There's so many other things I'd love to, to say uh, from, from this chapter and, and really the verse number 21 on down, the Lord begins to talk about forgiveness and, and really the Lord talks about people who are forgiven but won't forgive people. Do you know what I'm looking at? I'm looking at a bunch of people that have been forgiven by the grace and mercy of God. And yet we're not quick to forgive people who, to, let's be honest, they've done lesser things than we have done. God help us to look for ways to reconcile rather than ways not to reconcile. Right? Let's forgive, right? All right, thank you. Oh, because they're helping with our children, so don't be distracted with that. Number six. Uh, Brother Lake's going to deal with family, and it's, the question is, raising our children in a protected environment, Christian homes, how do we prepare them for exposure to the things of this world like technology, cell phones, internet, and for associations, co-workers who may be fornicators, automates, etc.? How do we prepare our children to be exposed to that kind of thing? This will be the question I don't have the answer for. <laughs> it's amazing because I find that uh, we, we sometimes try to boil everything down to a formula and there just isn't one. So, you know, Bill Gothard built a ministry on step-by-step, well, ministry, no, I'll use that lightly, uh, on, on a philosophy of step-by-step -step ways to get this done and that done. It just doesn't work. Amen. But I'll tell you what drove this. Uh, you know, John said, and we're familiar, he had no greater joy than to know his children walk in truth. And so then I suppose the opposite of that would be he had no greater fear than to know his children didn't or wouldn't. And um, I don't have an irrational fear concerning that in my children, but I do have a realistic fear. Because we live in an evil, evil world. And when I, when I raised in a Christian home, when I remember getting my very first job, there was no Christians, the boss wasn't a Christian, my co-workers weren't a Christian, they knew I was a Christian, I smelled like a Christian, I looked like a Christian, I talked like a Christian, I did not know the language of unchristian people, and I got that first job, and boy, did they ever exploit me. They did stuff to me, they said stuff to me, and I had no idea whatsoever what they were talking about. And I'm not going to tell you what those things were because they're, they're vile, vile things. But I, as I thought about that as I got older, and by the way, I survived, praise the Lord, 
But I thank God for this. I had a dad who I could tell anything to. I had parents, a mom even. Sometimes there were things that I knew dad wouldn't have the best answer to. I knew mom would have it. But I had parents that I could go to about anything. Amen. And we better have open lines of communication with our children. Amen. And I learned that you don't get good, clear, open lines of communication with your children with closed doors. Amen. In our home, there was an open door policy. Our parents could open our door at any time. Amen. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 18. Just give us a little kicking off spot. But it's been a great concern of mine. I'm raising four boys. 18, 17, 14, and 4. When I, when I was 18, cell phones were just becoming a thing. And you certainly couldn't browse the internet and have all of that at your fingertips on the little phone that I had. Amen. But I, I read this verse, and I know I'm taking this verse out of context, so you're just going to have to forgive me, and I'm going to do it anyway. But I read this verse, and the Lord struck me with this. Jeremiah chapter 18, and verse number 12. And they said, there is no hope, but we will walk after our own devices, and we will everyone do the imagination of his evil heart. When you consider who's saying that, it alarmed me. It alarmed me. You know, it, it started off there in the verse, in verse 12, he said, there is no hope. And you know what I see in, in, in the generation of kids these days? Not so much in church, praise God, because we're supposed to be presenting them with the hope. Amen. But you see a society of young people with no hope. No hope. What hope does a child have that's been exposed to all the glorious things of our educational system? There's no hope in that. Amen? There's no hope in that at all. They're just burying themselves in an alternate reality so they don't have to think about what their life is actually consisting of. They're hopeless. And you know, as a result of having no hope, and by the way, we're raising this generation, they call it the I generation, the I gen. I, I know you've heard Generation Z and Millennial Generation and all that, but the, old, the, the big umbrella is the I generation. And I, I thought that was pretty inter interesting because it, it really it was, the, the term was devised as the connected generation. The connected, and we've never had a generation more disconnected, in a sense, if you would, than what we have right now. Amen? Disconnected because their life is lived in an alternate reality and they just eat and sleep in this one. Amen? It, it's, it's, a, it's a crazy thing. But because there's no hope, when I read that, I just read, you know, they're walking after their own devices. Everybody's just walking around and doing every evil imagination of their heart. Every evil imagination of their heart. And that scares the fire out of me. Amen. And so I began to pray as, you know, Owen, he's 18 and I have a 17-year-old come behind. And I began to pray. My wife began to pray and seek the Lord. And Lord, you, you know, there may have been a day when you could protect your children from the media world. We're not, I mean, they are going to see things. They are going to hear things. They are going to be exposed to things that you wish they didn't have to be. But folks, you can't go anywhere. 
I know that the solution, when I was, I heard all the preaching, the preaching was, you know, you, you, if you go to the super, just don't let your men go in the supermarket because they're going to see something. That's not the solution. That's not the answer. You cannot live in your house and pull the blinds and never go into the real world. So there's got to be some preparation made. Amen? We can't just expect to throw our... We are raised in conservative Christian homes. I see young people here being raised in conservative Christian homes. And if you just throw them out there, that, you're just going to feed them to the wolves. Amen? And so there are some things that I began to realize about this. We live in the most digitally connected, smartphone, technology-addicted generation this iGen generation, you know what I know? They are tech savvy. You know, the, the thing about it is that most young people know more about the technology than the parents know. That's, that's, the, that's the fact. Amen? And, and I'm not just saying this, but according to, to one study, the average age for a child to get their first smartphone in the United States was 10 years old. And many of those phones were hand-me-downs from mom or dad. Oh, here's this old phone. It hardly works anymore, and they can't get into any trouble. And here you go. Here's this old phone. And then but between 12 to 17-year-olds, nearly 80% have smartphones. So they're, they're, we live in a tech-savvy world, folks. Amen? And you know another thing I know? They're always online. I remember when the internet first became a thing. Amen. We actually had to go somewhere, book time in, and sit down and you could book 10 minutes or 15 minutes down at the library to research your paper or do whatever you were doing. You had to book time because everybody didn't have internet. But this generation, it's always online. If you have a cell phone with you here this morning or a tablet or anything, you're online. It's online. It's, it's available. It's there. You can get Wi-Fi at Tim Hortons and McDonald's and everywhere you go. It's just there. It's there. It's an online world that we're living in. And you know the other thing I realize about this generation? They are secularizing. There's very, uh, very little spiritual influence. Amen. You know, it's amazing. We have a kids program in our church, and we kind of use it as an outreach for young children up to the age of 12. And we're bringing children in there. Listen, not only have they never heard of David and Goliath or Noah and the ark, they don't even know who Jesus is. All they know is Jesus Christ is a word Daddy uses when he comes home drunk or gets home from work and has a bad day. They have no idea that God sent His Son to die for them on the cross of Calvary and His name was Jesus Christ. They don't know. They don't know. You know, a generation or two ago, you couldn't have said that. Every child knew the basic story of, uh, of Christ coming to earth and dying on the cross. But now we're literally living in a day where kids, don't, they don't know any of this stuff. Amen. Most of us were raised in a generation where there was a family Bible on the table. Now there's no family Bible on the table. There's a, there's a cell phone or two or three or four or five. Amen. And you know the other thing we need to realize about it today is that young people are learning to perceive each other in little 
fractured, fragmented sections. You know. Now, I know that some people think that it's ultra-spiritual to have no idea what I'm talking about. But ignorance is not bliss. And just to bury your head in the sand and say, that'll never happen to me, that'll never happen to my kids, that's not going to happen here, that is completely ignorant. Amen? You know, most people are consuming media in 10-second, 15-second increments. And the, 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 the reputation and, and the, the, the learning and the perceptions that they are taking of other people is learned not in a story, not in a, not in a book, not in a long form, but in short, incremental, quick, flashing imagery. With social medias like Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, and all these kinds of things. You say, how do you know about these things? Because I believe that I cannot just take my children and throw them out there and put all this stuff at their disposal and expect for it to go well. You say, do you have that? I don't have any of those things. But I know a lot of people that do. Amen? I used to preach against all those things, but it's pointless now. <laughs> Amen? It's pointless. It's pointless. So you say, well, what do you do about it? Well... It was with a lot of prayer. You know, Owen just graduated. And you know, I believe when you're raising young boys, you need to give benchmarks. You need to give some goals. You need to have some ceremony. And you know, back home when, when COVID hit and everything, and we had all our homeschoolers were graduating, you know, people were just throwing little backyard barbecues because they didn't want to draw. When my son graduated, I, I said to him, I said, Owen, I want to have a formal ceremony. I want you to wear the cap and the gown. I want to have you walk down the aisle. I want people to give you a chart. I what? That is important in the life of a young man. There's got to be a passing of the torch. There's got to be a ceremonial passing. I, I believe that. I think that's important. Amen. The passage from youth to manhood to the next step in your life. And so, you know, we did that. And, and you know, so along with that came, you know, I put all this training. The Bible says, train up a child in the way they should go. And I, we put all this training into our son, all this training into our sons. And now it's time to trust the training. That's hard. That's easier to say than do. Amen. And so I told the boy, you know, it used to be that we could not wait to turn 16 so we could drive. But you know what the greatest joy of a youth's, what they look forward to the most now? When they can get their first phone. I mean, I know 20-year-olds that don't drive, but bless God, they have a phone. Amen. That's the society we live in. Amen. And, uh, and so with, the, with this came some of these things. You know, all right, son, you know what my desires are. You know what the Word of God says. But I'm going to let you make your own decision here. You know, I believe we ought to be doing that while our children still live in our homes. Amen. When it comes to this, I mean, how do we prepare them? We need, we need to start letting them make some decisions, trusting our training, and letting them make some decisions within some parameters of their own while they're still living in our home. You know why? So they can mess up, so they can fall down, and we're there to help pick them back up. Amen. 
they know there's some, there's some rules that are invariable in our home. I think I already shared with you about the, the facial hair thing with my dad. Boy, when I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to grow an inch of facial hair. And I told my son when he graduated, you know, for, I think it's a good thing, you know, when a boy starts getting a little, and man, he wants to grow something on there. And he wanted to so bad. So I said, you know what? You know you know what I think, you know all that, but I said, it's time for you to make your own decision. And you know, I, I know the dangers of illustrations with him sitting right there, but he grew him some facial hair. Actually, when he showed up here, he had it. And I just kept telling him, I said, son, that's not a beard. You know how it is when you first started trying to grow some and it was all patchy and this. And I mean, it's, it's better than Levi's. It's better than so-and-so's. Yes, son, maybe so, but it's just not that great yet. And so we kind of joked about it back and forth, didn't we? And we just talked about it a little bit. And I said, son, I sure would love it if you just went downstairs and just, just took that off. I said, you look so much better with that off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we did that for the first two days we were here. Okay, okay. And he went downstairs. And you know what? It wasn't with a bitter attitude. It wasn't begrudging. You know why I did it? Because he knew what I thought. You know, that means a lot to me. I don't know if he's going to do that every time. But you know, we... Um, we ventured into the very dangerous waters of these smartphones. But you know, folks, don't be unreasonable. You expect your children to never have one or never use one. You, you all use them. Amen? You all have them. So many adults, they don't know how to set it down and leave it alone either. So don't expect out of your children what you're not going to practice. If you're constantly doing... Amen? So I said, how, how, how am I going to deal with this? How am I going to help navigate this. You know, and so we got him a smartphone. He graduated high school, 18, he's driving, he's working. And so we got him a smartphone. And now I researched every blocker, every parental restriction, every single thing that I could do. I called my friend Andrew, who's a big techie guy, and I said, what is the best? What? But you know what? I have that there on that smartphone, but you know what? I don't have anything blocked. Nothing. I can see what he does. I can stop it. But you know, one day he's going to walk out of my house. And the only thing he's going to have is himself and God. I had one guy tell me, he said, well, when my son gets married, I'm going to pass the blockers off to his wife. And his wife is... Good luck. You want to end that marriage in divorce? That's a good way to do it. Amen? And, I, and like I said, I, I'm, just, I'm trying to share my heart with you because this is a question that has no answer. All I know is you, you better get on your face before God. You better pray. You better seek the Lord. You better glean as many ideas from as many different people as you possibly can. People that have done it well. People that have not had success. You know, there's no formula that's going to guarantee you success. 
Amen? But I know one thing. I know that my sons know that I love them. They know that I would do anything for them. And I have told them this from the very first day. I have told my sons, if you ever walk away from the Lord, you will walk away alone. I am not leaving the Father's house. And I'll do one thing different than that Father did. You won't get anything. You won't get anything. You walk away from God, it's alone. Don't call me and ask me for money. Don't call me and ask me to bail you out. If you want my help, you come back on your knees and you repent. You say, I've got right with God and we'll see. I'm not going that way. I'm not going to break my wife's heart. I'm not going to break my own heart over every single day. Hey, hey, I can reach out to them and say, you ready to come home yet? You ready to come home yet? But I'm not going. I'm not going. I'm not going. So what do you do? You delay it as long as possible. Amen. You take control in your home. Amen. You, if you have, uh, you know, technology in your home, take control of it. Amen. Technology did not invent new sins. You understand that? It did not invent new sins. They just simply amplify the temptations. All this technology is not as a result. All of the, the stuff we're dealing with is not a, as a result of new sins. It's a result of more accessibility to those things. So we have to get control of. Old temptations are given new levels of attraction, new levels of addiction, new levels of accessibility, and more anxiety for us as parents. But you better pray. You better seek the Lord. You better seek God. Lord, please, please help me. And you, you should develop a strategy, a plan. Don't just wing it. Well, I'm just, I'm just praying God will do it. God expects something out of us. And I don't have the answers for you, amen? But you better seek some answers for the Lord because that world's coming for our kids, amen? Amen. We don't live in a world anymore. You can hardly get through a day without the use of a computer or the use of some type of technology. So, amen. Brother Ray is going to deal with the subject of music, and he's going to tell us about some of Canada's greatest contributors to hymns. Then he's going to talk about some of the dangers, even in Bible-believing churches, of music. So again, this is question number seven, music. If you would please take your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Try not to mess up the mural, that would be really bad. Can I just do this from back here? Is that better? All right. Ephesians chapter 5. Can I, can I get some help reading? Uh, Pastor Carlson, would you read Ephesians 5.19 for me? All right, so we, we know from Scripture that the, uh, the Bible tells us to sing psalms and hymns and uh, spiritual songs. It does not say psalms or hymns or spirit. It says all of them. And so we're supposed to uh, sing all of those songs. Uh, and, and yet that sometimes gets difficult to define. I'm going to, I've got five pages of notes. 
for this question. So you understand, I can't, I can't cover everything. If you need more, I'm assuming you don't mind, I'll just give you the notes and you can pass them along. But uh, let me throw out a few words here that we have got to, um, we've got to reconsider, okay? Um, because if we're using these words to describe music, we're really losing the battle. Uh, we use words to describe our music at our church like traditional, right? You probably have driven down the road and you'll see the traditional service at such and such time and then the contemporary service at another time. The, the problem with that is that takes the argument away from right and wrong. You understand, just because something's contemporary doesn't mean that it's wicked. Does everybody understand that? Contemporary just simply means it's in the modern time. So if, if somebody in this congregation today sat down and wrote a, uh, a set of lyrics and a tune, it doesn't mean because it was written today that it's evil. You have to judge it based on the, con the content of the lyrics and the, the makeup of the music. So this conversation that we typically have, we say, well, we're conservative or we're traditional. And then the world says, well, we're contemporary. That's, you're losing the battle. If that's your conversation, you're losing the battle. You really would be better off either saying, uh, for example, godly or, and I, I think this is probably the best, is scriptural or unscriptural. Okay? It, does our music align with scriptural principles or is it unscriptural? Uh, I'm just going to give you a few. And I, I went back further in history. I understand, you know, Pastor had asked about, uh, I believe it was Oswald J. Smith. I went back further in history uh, as far as those that have contributed to uh, hymnody is what we would call it uh, among the Canadians. One is a man named Daniel McGregor and uh, he was a Baptist preacher that lived from 1847 to 1890. He wrote a song called Jesus Wondrous Savior. I don't know if that's in your all's hymn books or not. Uh, it is in ours. But it became the song uh, of, uh, known as the McMaster Hymn. And it was sung at their graduations and things of that nature. But he was a, a Baptist preacher that wrote that song and it became a real big deal here in Canada. Another one you're probably more familiar with this person is William Featherstone. Did any of you know that name, William Featherstone? Okay, uh, you'll know this. He wrote, My Jesus, I Love Thee. A great song. Here's what's even more incredible. He wrote it shortly after his conversion at age 16. Uh, it's really, it's incredible when you think about that. That song is a blessing every time we sing it. And to think that a 16, 17-year-old young man wrote that uh, shortly after he was converted. And he really only lived, let's see, about, uh, I think it was 20, 27 years. He died at 27 years of age. That's incredible to have written that song. You die at 27 and you wrote that. And it's, it's going to go on. I think that song will make it till Jesus comes. That's incredible. Another one is a lady named Anna Coghill. Uh, she lived from 1836 to 1907. How many of you know that name? Okay. She, you, you know this, Work for the Night is Coming. She wrote that song. And uh, supposedly she did so when she was 18 years old. That impresses me. Um, just so you know, I mean, what he was talking about, we young people today live in this technology world, and young people aren't accomplishing anything. When young people just had books and nothing else 
you know, what are you going to do today? Well, I'm going to do the chores. What else are you going to do? They would read books. They would write. Uh, God help us. We need to, I wish we could go back to some of that, really. Uh, another one that I, I, and this one's incredible, Joseph Scriven. How many of you know that name? Surely you know that name. He wrote the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Now, his, uh, Scriven's, the conditions of that song, uh, it about never went into print. I don't know if you knew that, but his mother took ill. She was in uh, Dublin. He lived in Canada. He couldn't visit her. And uh, he, he sat down and wrote that, that poem. It was just a poem. He sat down and wrote that to send to his mom to be a comfort and encouragement to her. So he sends, uh, that's all he did. He just wrote this poem and he sent it to his mom. He never had any plans to publish the poem. However, a man named Ira Sankey discovered it uh, when he was finishing, it was a book, Gospel Hymns Number 1. It was the last song to make it in the book. It about didn't go to print. And how often has that song been a comfort and a help to you in, in difficult times? The la and here's what Sankey said. It was the last hymn which went into the book became one of the first in favor. Now, see, here's the thing about these old hymns and old hymn writers. First, they walked with the Lord. In their personal lives, they loved God. They read their Bibles, they prayed, they went to church, they, they loved God and it showed in their daily living. And these, many of these folks wrote songs before they could make money writing songs. We often pick, and I think rightfully so, we pick on the modern versions because we say it's all about the money, Okay. The love of money, that's what the Bible says, the love of money is the root of all, it doesn't say the root of all kinds of evil, it says the love of money is the root of all evil. If you search deep enough in sin and you say, okay, what's the root of this sin? Somewhere down at the basement is the love of money. Okay? So we pick on the modern versions. We say, well, the reason why they come out with a new version every year is because they change a few things, get a new copyright, and they are making money. Okay? And that's one of the beautiful things about the King James Bible. We're not dealing with a, a copyright. As, you, could, you could go take a picture of the page. The only thing that's ever copyrighted in these things is if you've got study notes and Bible maps and those kind of things. The same thing's true of music. When people were writing songs and they weren't making money off the songs, things were a lot cleaner. Okay? Now, I... I I want to, if, if I can take you, go to, go to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, and uh, brother, I may ask you from time to time, brother Dave, is that correct, or David, Dave or David? Okay, if, I'm, if I can ask you from time to time what I'm dealing with on time, where am I at right now? Okay, okay, Matthew chapter 7, verse number 15, the Bible says, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly, they are ravening wolves. Now, let me ask you a question. If they showed up, if false prophets showed up looking like a wolf, wouldn't that be so much better? Yeah. You just say, oh, that's a wolf, right? The most dangerous wolves show up looking like sheep. So they look like they're one of you, but they're not. Inwardly, they've got an ulterior motive. They, there's something else behind the scenes that they are trying to accomplish that's not what you want to accomplish. 
Let, let's do it real quick. And I've got to be real quick with this. And I, I'm going to skip probably most of this. The reason why I say we've got, we got to stop this conversation is because you understand every song in your hymnal at some point was contemporary. Right? Isaac Watts goes to church with his dad. His dad said, how'd you like the service, son? He said, the music was terrible. And his dad said, do something about it. And he did. Boy, did he. Okay. And uh, he's uh, thought by many to be the father of, uh, of English hymnody. But at some point, Isaac Watts was writing contemporary Christian music. <laughs> right? It's true. Come on. And so we got to be careful about this conversation. What we really have to examine is what's the motivation? What's the heart? What, what's, what's the end goal of this music that's being written and sung. Now, many of the English reformers of the 15 and 1600s only allowed psalms. That's all that you could sing in a, in a worship service was psalms. And that's probably about the time Isaac Watts walked in and it sounded like chanting and he said, we got to do something about this. Uh, hymns became more prevalent in the late 1600s and remained popular through the 1700s. Most of those songs focus on God. They don't worry for a second about you. Okay? Holy, holy, holy. That doesn't involve me. Okay? It's all about God. And that's, they felt safe there. We're going to sing about God. And I think that's probably a good thing. The category we know as spiritual songs really became prevalent in the latter part of the 1800s and the 1900s where you get people like Fanny Crosby and Robert Lowry and some of those. And they begin to write songs that involve me, testimony, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, okay? So they began to introduce man into the songs a little bit. Probably was not dangerous at that moment, but little did they know where we would be today. Today, it's all about me. And God is judged or perceived or thought through the lens of me. That's a bad place to be, okay? So in the early days, the, the attitude was, okay, we, we can't allow this new song, this new hymn that's going away from, you know, psalms, and so we can't depart. And when new songs were introduced, they viewed them as dangerous, and sometimes they were correct, sometimes they weren't correct. And so we got to be careful. Now, if you fast forward in, in the United States of America, maybe that's true here as well, in the uh, late 1800s and early 1900s, uh, there was an introduction of what is now known as Southern Gospel music. Uh, some initially accepted it, some rejected it. They said this has got to be ungodly because it introduced jazz-style music with Christian lyrics. Okay? And I, I, if I had time, I would preach Exodus chapter 32 when they're coming out of Egypt and they're having that first, you know, contemporary, we call it worship service. They're dancing, they're, they're doing Egyptian music. They're naked, they're dancing. It sounds like war. That is, uh, Egypt is the northeast corner of the African continent. And I will tell you this, because I, I don't have time to prove it, but the, the music problems that we face in churches today are still from the African continent. Jazz is creeping into our churches and we're, we're, it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. We have no, it, to us, oh look, it's a sheep. No, it's not. It's a wolf. 
And before you know it, your music's going to go, and, and then you'll hand your Bible in. That's always the way it goes in churches. They first give up on the music, then they give up on the Bible. Now, during the Jesus movement in the late 1960s, music claimed, claiming, uh, arose claiming to be Christian. They, they began contemporary Christian music, introduced drums, electric guitars, rock sounds, but Christian lyrics. Biblically grounded Christians rejected that. You've probably heard preaching, we're against contemporary Christian music. It's over here. It's evil. Here we are. And that stuff's ungodly. It's wicked. We don't do that in our church, right? Sometimes they still did Southern gospel, but, but contemporary is wicked, okay? Southern gospel's okay. And they began to preach against some of these things. Some were preaching against Southern gospel. Some were preaching against contemporary music. And I don't know if you remember this stuff, but in the 80s and 90s, they used to have commercials with this two-CD set or whatever, and it's praise and worship songs, right? I can't remember some of the names of those songs, but now people that were preaching against those are using them. Here's what I'm going to tell you, and how much time do I have left? I'm going to tell you, the music over here, let's, and, and this is, some of this is opinion. You understand that? I can't sit here and show you two Bible verses that are going to settle this whole thing. You're going to walk away, well, oh, those two Bible verses convinced me of everything he said. I can't do that. I can tell you, I've been in a church that went full-blown contemporary, that claimed to be an independent Baptist church. It was more Southern Baptist when I got saved. But they started with testing the waters a little bit on music here and there. Now they have women preachers. Uh, they have women prophets. They, they, they're, the, it's a dance team, drama team. It, and it happened unless it, the father passed away, the son took the church. It's a train wreck. Okay? That's how quick this thing can happen. I'm telling you right now, I think we should put Southern Gospel music, I'm just going to abbreviate, and what people call CCM over here. It's basically Christian rap, which is nonsense, uh, that you'd even put those words together. Uh, rock. All that stuff, okay? The jazz influence over here. But here's what I'm going to tell you. I don't think that's the most dangerous music. We stand over here and we preach against all this. Praise the Lord. But that's not where our people are going wrong. Here's what's happened. Some people know about this gap. And they said, we're going to do another kind of music. And this music is, I, I, I think other people call this as well, it's bridge music. Bridge music. And what bridge music does is it will take you, the goal, they, they, and they've stated this, people like, I don't even like to do this, the Gettys, uh, Stuart Townend, uh, Sovereign Grace Music, all these groups, okay? Some songs that you have probably heard, maybe they've been sung here. And you think, oh man, that sounds like a scriptural song. And it does when you're just playing a piano and somebody's just singing, but if you went and heard the performance of it the way it was intended to be performed, you would be appalled by it. Here's what I'm going to tell you. They, they, ha, they have built a bridge, okay? But there's one problem with this bridge. There's only one way travel. They are trying to get our young people, who we've taught to love hymns, to think of songs like In Christ Alone, that is sweeping through independent Baptist churches today. Uh, behold our God. And if you just judge those songs based on the lyrics of those songs, you say, wow, that is good stuff.
But what you don't understand is these people have expressed, they have gone back. I, I, I don't have the time to do this. They've gone back and they've cleaned up their websites when Independent Baptists started exposing what they said was their motive. They want to bring together people on this side and people on this side and, and just have one big fellowship. And when people started exposing that and saying, Here, here's the quote, they changed their websites. You can go back on what's called archive.org, and they've got a thing that says Wayback Machine, and you can go search what their pages used to say before Independent Baptists started writing these articles, and you can pull up what they used to say, and you can see what they say now, and they've changed their wording because they got exposed. Folks, that's a wolf. A wolf is trying to take our young people from here to here and say, here you go. It's one-way travel, okay? There's so much uh, that I would love to say. This is Stuart Townen, he's the son of a vicar of the Church of England. That man was a vicar until his death in 1985. He made a commitment, whatever that means, at, at age 13. That doesn't sound promising to me. In June 2017, Stuart was delighted to receive from the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Thomas Cranmer Award for Worship for his outstanding contribution to contemporary worship music. And guys, there are new guys popping up all the time with these things. Behold, our God is a big one. In Christ alone is a big one. How deep the Father's love for us is a big one. Stuart Townen's the one that wrote How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Guys, I'm just telling you, those songs sound great. When somebody's just playing a piano and somebody's just up here holding a mic singing it. And most of our young people are hearing these because they get CDs from independent Baptist singing groups who don't take the time to examine what they're doing. And you have to guard, I'm telling you, guys, you have to guard your music with all your heart. Because once your music goes, the, the candlestick's leaving. You may not know it today, but it's gone. Because that music teaches carnality in your young people. It it, it'll mess with your clothing. It'll mess with your attitude. It'll mess with your heart. And before you know it, you're going to start like it. These people have stated that they were greatly influenced by the Beatles. And now we're having them influence our church music. Guys, it is extremely extremely scary i could give you other lyrics by these folks that you would say it's not here you might say well in christ alone the lyrics are here but i could show you other things these folks have written that are here or here they're taking you that way to me this is not the most dangerous music because we pretty much say those are wolves when a wolf shows up wearing a sheep outfit that's when we get in trouble God help us. Brother Ray uh, put together a hymn book. How many pages of the hymn book? How many hymns? 980. He's done a lot of study on music. So he said, oh, Preacher, I, I think that was too far out. He's done a lot of study on music. Don't toss out his advice. Question number, Question number eight. So we have two more questions left. Question number eight is Brother Lake. It's about camp ministry. I don't know if you know, he did mention one of his messages that they have an El Bethel camp. 
How did God give you El Bethel Bible Camp and how is it affecting your ministry in the maritime provinces? Again, El Bethel Bible Camp. I feel like this is a selfish question. <laughs> but uh, thank God for, uh, for the camp. Let, let's go to a couple scriptures here. Again, man, as I feel like after Brother Fire, I'm still trying to digest here. I'm preaching on a full stomach. So, so uh, we'll try and get this together here. Psalms, uh, look at, uh, well, let's go to Psalms chapter 9. <clears throat> try and build a little bit of a platform and then tell you about the camp just a little bit. I never went to youth camp or had teen conferences or anything when I was a kid. It wasn't until I was 16 years old that I went to a, my first youth event where you went and there was all day stuff going on and overnight and all that. And, and, uh, and my dad, of course, started Teen Thunder, which uh, I know to everybody here is just a lot of noise with no rain. You have Teen Lightning uh, but uh, we had the, we my dad started that, and these were the first things that uh, of my exposure to special events for young people. Now, over the years, I've been to some really good ones, and I've been to some really horrible ones. And uh, youth ministry is not about entertaining youth. And uh, that was one thing that my dad made sure when he started Teen Thunder was we had more preaching than we had anything else. Morning, afternoon, night, two preachers at night, and we needed it. And in the first years we had that, we had no games. And I, I can look back on the pictures that some people took of that meeting, and you know what we saw? We saw groups of 12 young men over here on this side with their arms around each other praying. And groups of young ladies over here on this side with their arms around each other and praying. And you know what I can say? The majority of all those young people are still in church. Not a game in sight. Not an activity in sight. Not a snack bar in sight. I mean, our, our meals, every meal was hot dogs. <laughs> you know, it was a meager fare. It wasn't like this great food we've been having this week. It was just meek. But I'm telling you, the majority of those, they're still in. Amen. So youth ministry is not about entertainment. I remember going to a big, big youth conference with my cousin uh, in his church that they went to in Louisville, Kentucky. And I remember sitting there, and, and I'm from just a small church in Nova Scotia. And, uh, the special speakers that week were rappelling in from the ceiling and riding in on horses down the aisles of the churches and dressed up in superhero costumes. And I thought, oh my, where am I? And what am I doing? And you know, while I was trying to figure all that out, just like I'm standing here trying to figure all that out, brother, amen. And I'm, I'm standing here and, and I'm sitting there as a kid. And while I'm doing that, there was a finely dressed young man that in every service would approach me and say, could I please uh, let you know about our Bible college? And you know, even as a, what, I can't remember my, if I was 17 or 18, even as a kid at that age, I said, yep, I know what this is all about. And so I prayed that if God would ever let me do anything like that, it would be for a different reason. And as we look in the scripture, Psalms chapter 9 and verse number 14, he says here, that I may show forth all thy praise in the gates 
of the daughter of Zion, I will rejoice in thy salvation. Go quickly with me back to Deuteronomy 11. Just run a few scriptures here really quick. Deuteronomy chapter 11. You know, as I, if you've read through your Bible multiple times, I'm sure that you have picked up on the pattern of God's desire for His people to pass down what they had in memoriam to future generations. Over and over and over we see that. Deuteronomy eleven eighteen. Therefore shall ye lay up these words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. And by the way, we, we've, gone, we, we've done very well from going to frontlets between thine eyes to phylacteries of the Pharisees. And that's what a lot of ministry stuff can become if you don't keep it for the right reason. It becomes a symbol and a sign. We actually took our homeschool group to an Orthodox, a Jewish Orthodox uh, synagogue to take a little tour and see. The, and the man, he, the, the, the priest there, the rabbi, whatever he was, he took great joy in showing them how they tied on these great, and the bigger the box and the more things and all this stuff. And, and it's all it was. It was dead as four o'clock in the morning. Amen in there. But he says, these frontlets between your eyes, and ye shall teach them your children. Speaking of them, when thou sittest in thine house. You know, nowadays we, we don't spend as much time speaking of things, these things in our house because there's something else speaking to us. And we don't speak of these things anymore. Speaking of them in our house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up, and thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thine house and upon thy gates, that your days may be multiplied in the days of your children in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them as the days of heaven upon the earth. Look at Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4. You know, we could go to a hundred of these scriptures. Joshua 4 here, verse number 6. And here they're, they're erecting this altar here. They're putting up these stones here. And they, they've gathered these stones out of the, the river. And they're setting them up. Why? Verse 6, that this may be a sign among you that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Then ye shall answer them that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over Jordan. You know the story. He said, Just, I want you to tell this to your kids. I want you to pass this on to your kids. Uh, if you go further in, in, in chapter 4, verse 21 to 24, that your fathers asking, or your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Then ye shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. Psalms 145, the psalmist said in verse 1, I will extol thee, my God, O King, and I will bless thy name forever. Every day will I bless thee. I wonder if we do that. Bless the Lord, O my soul. You know, now, nowadays people say, well, bless the Lord. It irritates me. I, I remember when we used to have guest preachers and stuff, and they'd come in and say, they'd use expressions that I thought, wait a minute, isn't that kind of a little vain? <laughs> you know, well, bless the Lord, you know. No, bless the Lord. Amen. Every day I will bless thee, and I will praise thy name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. You know, God is so great, we're supposed to say something about it. Amen. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise thy works to another. 
Amen? And shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works. And men shall speak of the might of thy terrible acts, and I will declare thy greatness. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy great goodness and shall sing of thy righteousness. Amen? We are supposed to pass on what God has blessed us with to future generations. To our children, to our children's children, amen, the word of God, the, the testimonies of his greatness and of his goodness. And so I, I think I already relayed to you how the camp came about, but I love young people. I love young people. Amen. I love my young people. I love the young people in our church. If you ever get to go to the East Coast and visit us sometime, you know the one thing you're going to find out is those young people know their pastor loves them. And you know, that's something I take great joy in letting our congregation know every Sunday I always make sure that I tell them, you know what? I love you. And I you know what I appreciate? They've put up with me, amen? As much as I put up with them, they've put up with me, I'm sure, amen? But I love them and I appreciate it. I love our young people. You know, I, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, I didn't, never, I didn't want to pass the responsibility of pastoring our young people off to somebody else. I wanted to be their pastor. Amen. And so we have these organizers and they put these functions together and make these, you know, do all these little things. But I try and always be there. Amen. From day one, I want to be there. Why? I, wa I wanted them to know that I loved them. And as our young people's group started to grow, I said, Lord, we, it would be real nice to have more than just one you know, Teen Thunder. Teen Thunder's great. Man, it, it's wonderful. But Lord, it sure be nice to have. You know, and I just started praying and asking the Lord. And, and then one day, uh, you know, uh, we had our camp meeting. Our camp meeting was the 29th year of our camp meeting this year. And it's, I mean, it started way before me. But we, uh, we had a 60 by 100 tent that we were holding our camp meeting in for years. And that tent was getting old and ratty. And so uh, one year, one of the preachers got up and said, you know, we, we really should raise the money, try and raise the money to put a permanent structure here on this church property so we can, you know, this old tent's not going to last much longer. And that night, $40,000 got raised up. And we built that thing. It cost 60, but we took up 40, amen. And God provided the rest of it. And, uh, and so that was wonderful. And we had camp meeting there for a couple years, but then there, there was another bit of an issue is the church was really growing. People were getting saved. People were coming, new families. And our little auditorium was 32 feet long and 17 feet wide. And we were putting 80 people in there. It wasn't working very well. So in the summertime, we would go out and hold our services in this open-air tabernacle that was on our church property that we had built to have the camp meeting. I mean, we were about 40 people having 200 people coming for camp meeting at times. And, you know, it was a little overwhelming. But then the church, things started to happen. And just like here, you know, you're building and doing... And I told my wife that there's a part of this church I never want her to see, and that's that storage area back there. She's not allowed to see that. That's one thing every, every pastor's wife is always going to say, we don't have enough storage space. So. But uh, anyway, so we started going out when the weather was favorable and we'd hold the services out there. But it didn't take us long to realize this is not a long-term solution. So we, we got these little, you know, our Sunday school classes were four little cabins that we built, 12 by 16, and we put them in single file in behind our little hall church there and they'd go out to say in the winter time they'd go out through the snow and go into their little sunday school room we were heating them with propane i mean it was a fire inspector's nightmare but it worked it worked 
We knew that wasn't a long-term solution, so we were just praying, Lord, what do you want us to do? We went and looked at an elementary school there in our town that they'd closed down, built a new school. We, you know, we prayed about that, and we, well, we stuck a quarter, amen, inside one of the bricks and said, Lord, this is the down payment. If this is what you want us to have, you're going to, you know, we did all that stuff. And then, and then that winter, our family was skating at the ice rink, and a lady from the community, a Pentecostal lady, came up to me and said, uh, have you ever been interested in having a youth camp? I said, well, yeah, I'm interested. But we're trying to figure out our church building problem. We had a bigger problem than starting some youth camp. And so we, but she said, we have this camp property. She said, and if you could have seen that camp property, the first time we rolled on there, she said, would you come see it? We're looking for a partner. And I said, well, we're never going to partner. I said that to myself, but we'll come look at it. What a jungle. What a jungle. How they had built that thing was they told people in these Pentecostal churches, if you'll build a building on this property, you can come here anytime you want to and use it for yourself, except one week of the year we're going to have camp. And I'm telling you, whoever built there was not carpenters. It was just horrible. It was so overgrown. They, hadn't been, they used it one day a year for the last five or six years. She said, we have no manpower. We have no money. She said, all we see is when we drive by your church, it's filled with cars and there's kids running around and we want a partner. They didn't want a partner. They wanted somebody to do all the work. And so we went back to the church, and we got talking amongst the men. We, we all knew there was no partnership that was going to happen, amen? But we all got talking about it. And, you know, it was even thrown around the idea, well, well let's not, we, we don't have time to mess with that. We got, you know, we got to figure out what we're going to do with the church and how, you know, how that's all going to work. And, um, but then one brother came up, and he said, well, let's just ask them to give it to us. If they give it to us, we don't have to do anything with it right away. We can just sit on it for a while and just... I'm telling you, God's timing was impeccable. We just went there and we sent him a letter. And you go, got fancy letterhead, you know, wrote all the big words that we knew, you know, and put that in there and sent it off. And they called us and said, come on over to this business meeting. We went over and just one by one, they handed it over, resigned their position, appointed us. And when we walked out of there, we had 16 and a half acres on a lakefront. And I said, wow, Lord, I mean... You know, I, I didn't know what was going to become of it. I hadn't, even, I hadn't given it a, that much thought, but God knew all along exactly what we needed. And so then God sent a man named Ron Walker along, and we said, well, if we start working at that camp and we start cutting back the brush, and, you know, the first two years we had camp up there, there was no toilets, no showers, no place to meet in. We met out underneath a pine tree, Amen. And it, the first two years, it never rained a drop either week. We met in the open air under pine trees. The kids sat on the ground. They showered in the lake and used the woods. <laughs> now, most places, that's not going to fly. But we had two years of camp. We had multiple young men called to preach. And countless kids got saved and committed themselves to the Lord. And you know the children that were in those first two youth camps? They're still there. All of them. I mean, you don't need fancy. You just need God. Amen. And so we, you know, we bought all this uh, uh, lake-friendly soap. And, you know, we'd, we'd put the, yeah, <laughs> we'd put the boys way up in the field. Amen. And the girls would go down and they'd do whatever they had to do. And then we'd put the girls way up in the field. And, you know, we did that. We did that for two years. 
And, uh, and then God started really working and moving. And man, we, by God's grace, we were able to put a septic field in and showers and bathrooms. And I think we have a total of uh, four, five, six cabins, dormitories on either side. We have like a little boys village and a girls village now. And we're trying to raise money. And your church has sent money and other churches have sent money. And it, it's just been such a blessing. And God just really got in it. And God knew we needed that so that we could turn that building back at the church into the church. And so God sent Ron Walker along, and man, he, he was a master builder. He took that old barn and made it into the most beautiful church you've ever seen. I mean, it's, it's simple, but practical, but absolutely beautiful. And we're so, so thankful what God has done. His timing is perfect. Amen. And so, and so we had this big camp meeting and now we had a problem because, you know, in the church we had to put some bathrooms and we had to put some, you know, some, some uh, nursery, amen, and do, do this kind of stuff. We couldn't hold the growing camp meeting in that little sectioned off building now. And so we started praying and said, all right, we're just going to we're just going to move the camp meeting to the camp. And now what, Owen? Oh, we've had three, four camp meetings. Up. Our third camp meeting up there. Uh, our, our fourth, fifth youth camp will be this year up there. And God has just continued to bless. It's been able to be a blessing. See, we have something very special, as your pastor knows, over there, we actually have a, a lot of churches to fellowship with. Not a lot, but three, four, five really good churches, and we have great fellowship. In fact, tomorrow night for church, our church and my dad's church will be driving down to my brother-in-law's church where they're going to have all church together for Fifth Sunday Fellowship. And every month that has a, I know, my father, my brother-in-law, <laughs> all the pastors are related over there, but that's just the way it is, Amen. And they're all going to have church together and have just a, like a little mini camp meeting every month that has a fifth Sunday. And it's been such a blessing. And they all got involved in the camp, amen? There was no jealousy. There was no envy. There was no, you know, uh, discord at all. They just all got involved. They, all summer long, we've been sending uh, work uh, crews up there. Every Saturday, there's a crew working over there. And God, I'm telling you, God has just been so good. We finished on Friday our camp meeting at home. And there was 300 plus people there. And I'm just telling you, and, and you know, just keep going on. Amen. I, I feel, you know, you're kind of a little more alone out here. You don't have that real, you know, group of churches things, but you, there's something good here. Amen. And God's using this place. And all I know to do and say is just when God puts something in front of you to do, just go after it and do it. Amen. And, uh, you could worry about it. You could fret about it. You could wonder about it. Amen. But. What's the point? Just do it, amen? If God, God puts it in front of you to do, just go for it, amen? And I don't have enough sense not to, so, well, maybe you should consider the, oh, I don't know, just, just go for it. But it's, it, has, it has definitely increased the faith of the people of our church. We've seen God provide time and time again. We told people at the camp meeting this year, we told them, we said, you know, what, we're going to take up an offering here. But whatever comes in, we're going to give it to the camp for the work of the ministry here. We want to build a tabernacle there to be able to have the service. We're still using a tent. We bought a tent a couple years back. And by God's grace, they took up $44,000 towards that project. 
I mean, if, if there's a recession, don't tell God's people because they don't know, amen? <laughs> I mean, it seems like the more the government taxes you, the more God's people gives. And God's not done, amen? God's still working. He's still moving. And I'm just glad to be a part of it, amen? No, I did not. <laughs> you were telling me the other day you can build a cabin for how much? But now that's that's a one-star cabin. But now he's going to put. Three stars. We'll put down flooring. They don't. They don't have any floors. That's why it's six thousand. Put some flooring down and, and, and cover the walls. And do some. Then you can get a five. Five stars air conditioning. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> one more question. And so if you can tell the kitchen crew, we're talking about twelve ten, twelve fifteen. If someone can let the kitchen crew, that's what we're thinking. Uh, last question, Brother Ray is going to preach on the subject of the home. What is the relevance of the word husband? And what does it teach us about man's role in a marriage? So again, what is the relevance of the word husband? And what does it teach us about the man's role in a marriage? Would you please take your Bibles go to Genesis chapter 9? Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, going to look at verse number 20 just to get a launching off place. Genesis 9 and verse number 20. The Bible says, And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. Now obviously in the scripture, a husbandman is one that tends to a vineyard, Right? You see right there in the passage, the Bible talks in other places about the role of a husbandman. And of course, we have shortened that word, and the Bible shortened that word to also say husband. You say, well, what does that have to do with a man's role in his home? If you will, look in your Bible to Psalm 128. Psalm 128. We're going to go several places, and then we'll settle into a, a chapter here in a moment. But Psalm, Psalm 128, and I want you to look down in the passage uh, we'll just start in verse number one. The Bible says, Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord, that walketh in his ways. For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands. Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house. Thy children like olive plants round about thy table. Behold... That thus shall the man be, uh, be blessed that feareth the Lord. In other words, when you fear God and you, you do right as a man with a household, the Bible says that your wife will be like a fruitful vine by the sides of your house and that your children will be like olive plants round about your table. Now, I don't know if this is true of, of how everybody does a wedding ceremony, but I often thought it was strange that at the end of a marriage ceremony, the, the preacher would say, I, I now pronounce you man and wife. That's weird, right? Shouldn't it be, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Now, I don't know if that's the way everybody does it, but that's the way I've always seen it done. In the, all the old books, it was, I now pronounce you man and wife, almost like, uh-oh. We got confused. Or maybe, 
Maybe we didn't. Maybe we didn't. Uh, any man can get married. But not every man that's married is a husband. A wife is a wife the moment she gets saved. She's a vine. She's to be tended to by the husbandman. If you will look with me in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 5, I really believe this is a great chapter to help us see some things. And this chapter, Isaiah chapter 5, it's talking about God as the husbandman and Judah as the vineyard, okay? But in this, we can see some things that I think will help us as we're trying to be good husbands uh, to our wives, okay? That would be a blessing if we would consider these things. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 5, verse number 1, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine. And built a tower in the midst of it and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes. And it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to, the, to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. Now, let's just stop there for the moment, and let's just make this statement. I think this is really important to understand. You can be a great father, and your children turn out bad. You can be a great mother, and your children not turn out the way that you wish they would turn out. You can be a great husband, and do all the things that a husband should do, and your wife not receive it, and your wife go the wrong direction. You can be a good wife, a great wife, in fact, and yet have a husband that is disobedient to the Scriptures. So you, you have to be careful not to shoulder all the blame when things don't go the way you expect them to go. At the same time, we should always be willing to look to God and say what He just said in verse number 4, what could have been done more? to my vineyard that I have not done in it. If God is willing to ask that question, because we know the answer to that, there is nothing more that God could do than what God did, right? God did everything that was needed and it didn't turn out right. But he was still willing to ask the question of people nonetheless, what could I have done more? Isn't that incredible? So if God's willing to ask that question, I would think every man in here, surely you can humble yourself enough to ask, could I be a better husband than I am at this present time? I, I, we're not talking about the ladies, per se, but surely ladies could ask the question, could I be a better wife than I am to my husband? Okay, parents, we could ask the question. Children should ask the question. Could I be a better child, a better young person than I am at this present time. But here's what I want to show you, okay? In Isaiah chapter 5, verse number 1 and 2, uh, God prepared for success. God prepared for success. 
It says in verse number one, my, my well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. Okay, so when God was looking for a place to plant this vineyard, he didn't say, let's look for a trash pile. That's the perfect place to put a vineyard. The Bible says that he planted this thing, he put it in a very fruitful hill. Uh, God expected and prepared for success. He put his vineyard in a place where fruit had been produced in years gone by. I think one of the biggest mistakes that men make, and, and men are making it all over the world, uh, but especially I think in our country, maybe in yours as well, is men are taking their families, they're, they're packing the bags, they're taking a wife and children, and they're putting them in a place where God is not present. They're putting their families in, a unfruitful, in an unfruitful uh, hill rather than a fruitful hill. They're taking their families to places where the Bible is not preached. The, the, you know, people don't care about right and wrong. It's just, it's just good old time all the time. And they are taking their families and specifically the wife out of a place that's fruitful and moving her to another place that is not fruitful. And listen, that can be scary. I thank God for missionaries who are willing to make the sacrifice to go to places that are unfruitful. But I fear every time it happens. Because so many people can go to the mission field for one year or two years and then they are coming back home because it was an unfruitful hill where they planted the vineyard. It's tough. Man, it's tough. Now, something else that we see here in verse number, so not only did God uh, put his vineyard in a place that had already been fruitful, okay, but verse number two, the Bible says, and he fenced it. God put up a fence. You see where that's going? If you're going to be a good husband to your wife, you're going to have to put up a fence. You're going to have to put something up to protect it from the things that are outside that want to get inside and do harm. Okay? So you're going to have to build a fence. Now, uh, you know, historically we used to talk, you know, the ladies wanted a, a white picket fence and they wanted, you know, a, a, you know, a what, beautiful colored door or whatever and some flowers and all that stuff. And we joke about that. But, it, but God, when he planted his vineyard, he said, if I'm going to be a good husband to this vineyard, I'm going to put it in a fruitful hill. But then it's not enough to just put it somewhere fruitful. I also have to put a boundary of protection round about this vineyard in order to protect it. So men, you have to put a fence around your wife. I'm not saying to, you know, shackle her in. Okay, that sounds horrible. Put her in a fence, you know. I'm not trying to say to shackle her in, but you have got to protect her Amen. from outside Amen. influences. So these ladies, and I, again, I'm not trying to pick on people. People have different convictions, and I'm not trying to, if you knew my heart, you'd know I'm not coming in here trying to bulldoze things. I want to help, okay? I am uncomfortable for me to send my wife out into the world to work a job where she is going to be answering to other men. She's obeying other husbands. You understand that? I'm uncomfortable in the world we live where men, one man is married to a woman over here, this woman's married to a man over here, they are now working close together, they're riding in the car, going to play business meetings together. I am uncomfortable with all of that. 
Okay, it starts innocent before you know it, it ends ugly. And we've got all sorts of adultery and fornication and all sorts of stuff where it's out of control because a man didn't put a fence around the vineyard. We were just talking about social media, soap operas, all the TV, all this stuff, putting stuff in the minds. Listen, in our country, the women in our country want a hallmark man they want him to be just the right weight they don't want him to sweat they want him to smell good they want him to bring flowers home when he's you know he's riding the horse uh, the wavy hair is going and he's riding the horse back to the house with fresh flowers you know as they're just blowing in the wind and he walks in with big muscles and he's honey i got you some some flowers and and he sets them down there and and that's not real life. It's not real life, okay? And, uh, and so that kind of stuff gets in the hearts and minds of a lady, and she begins to think, my husband doesn't love me. He doesn't love me. So you've got to put a fence up. You've got to protect her. Not only that, but if you look in verse number two, he said, and he fenced it, and, and, so it's not just he's worried about outside stuff, he's also taking care of the inside stuff. He says he went around and gathered out the stones thereof. Because, you know, stones aren't going to help a vine grow. It's going to hinder and stunt the growth. So not only does he, okay, he says, I've got a fruitful, here, a fruitful hill here. I've got a good start. I'm going to plant my vineyard right here. I think this is the perfect spot. But, oh, okay, what about stuff that could come in? Okay, now I'm going to go put this fence up and make sure, okay, but wait a minute. I've still got stones in here. I've got to go through. And so he's going through, and you get the imagery. He's going through, and he's picking up little rocks that could get in the way of his vineyard's growth. Sometimes there are things inside that you've got to go around and pick up. You've got to get it cleaned up because you're going to stunt her growth. Amen. Not only that, look at verse number two. It says he planted it with the choicest vine. Man, I like that. Amen. He planted it with the choicest vine. Oh, yeah. The best. So obviously everything God is doing here so far, he is preparing for success. Here's what I, I, I think this is important. Uh, my, my wife deals with some, some health issues. She's, she was diagnosed with RA and and now she has to take medicine, and sometimes her mind will get clouded and stuff. And, and man, she really gets down on herself. But I always try to tell my wife uh, encouraging things. I, I never, my wife says, oh, that was so, so even the, the passport situation. I don't want to tell you the story, but the passport situation that we were struggling to get our passports, it, it was just something that happened. And you know what, I, I always try to encourage my wife. She says, I'm just so stupid, or I'm just, it, no, 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 stop that. That's nonsense. You're exactly what God wants me to have. You are my best friend. You're a precious gift from God to me. I think too many men are stomping out their wives' potential because they are telling them they're stupid or they're dumb or they're incapable or that's pitiful or why did you do that? that? No, come on, that's not preparing for success. That's preparing for failure. You are, that's your vineyard. No, no, no husbandman in his right mind would go out to his vineyard and stomp on it and kick it and spit on it and, and throw stuff on it that'll kill it. Nobody would do that. Why are you doing that to your wife? Stop it. Stop it. Maybe her failures are your failures. Maybe her inadequacies are because you're not taking, you're the husbandman. 
In, in our country, we say the buck stops here. Guys, it's on you. At the judgment seat of Christ, if there's an accounting for being a husband, that's going to be on, on you. It's not going to be on your wife. She's going to be get, maybe given account for how she followed, but it's your leadership. It's your vineyard. You've got to take care of it. Look what else God did in verse number two. He, he planted it with the choices vine. He built a tower in the midst of it. He wanted to watch over it. He wanted to make sure everything's going fine. I understand that, that perhaps in the old days, men were going out into the world and they were working themselves silly and the wife's just at home content all the time, wearing a pretty apron when he shows up, you know, smelling like verbena or whatever it is, and uh, lemon verbena, and he just walks in and says, wow, honey, and her hair's fixed off proper and you know and she's got you know apple pie and whatever on the table and, and you just think man this is great and you know I don't even have to talk to her I just look at her she's so pretty I eat what she cooks and I go shower and I go to bed man life's great and then I wake up the next morning and I go do it all over again but I'm going to tell you something you don't live in that world anymore and if you're not building a tower and looking out for your wife and seeing how she's doing one day you're going to wake up and you're going to find your marriage is over. You're going to find that she's had enough. She couldn't talk to you about it because you wouldn't listen anyway. You never asked her how she was doing. You never asked her questions. You never looked at her countenance. You never built a tower and looked out over your wife and said, I know I've got all this other stuff to do. But my first ministry the first vineyard or field that God gave me to work in is my home. I wonder how that vineyard's doing today. And you know what you got to do? You may not want to do this. You're going to have to ask questions. And I don't know if this is the way Canadian women do it, but in America, here's what happens. What's wrong? Nothing. No, no. What's wrong? Nothing. Okay. What's wrong? Nothing. Okay. Well, I know that's not true. Because I see your countenance and I know something's wrong. Now, here's the reason why we don't like to ask that question. Because one day she might look at you and say, you. <laughs> My wife, uh, years ago, I was working myself silly in the ministry. And, um, and I still do, probably to a great degree. But uh, my wife looks at me and she says, um, we don't even know each other anymore. And she said, I think it would be a blessing if we could set aside one night a week for us to go spend time together. And you know what I did? I'm ashamed of this. I laughed. And you know why I laughed? I didn't have time. I didn't have time. The thought of going on a date every week, I didn't have time for it. But you know what? Eventually we did that. And you know what I look forward to every week? I look forward to date night with my wife. And that's the time that we get to talk and I get to find out how, how's she doing? Is she doing okay? She, now every man in here, you're nervous, right? I'm saying this stuff, you're like, oh, we, I wish they would have taken us back there to the children's class because now my wife's sitting here listening about date night and she's going she's gonna to demand a date night. I don't have time for a date night. I said the same thing. I said the same thing. 
But that's my best friend right there. And when my children get old enough and they move off, I'm still going to have my best friend at my house. Some of you are going to have to re-meet that woman that you married. The Lord built a tower, okay? He wanted to watch out over the vineyard to make sure everything was okay. Look what else he did in verse, and I, I, I may not even get done, but it's okay. He said he also made a wine press therein. You know what a wine press is? You're expecting fruit. So you go ahead and build the wine press so that you can get the fruit, squash it out. You know what he was doing? He was preparing that the vineyard was going to do well. His expectation was success, not failure. Sometimes you need to encourage your wife that you expect that she's going to do well. He looked that it should bring forth, uh, wild, uh, forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. Now, again, we don't, we don't have time to go into all this. Here's, I'm just going to give you some practical things and then I'm going to be done, okay? I would encourage you to read on down. He basically starts undoing everything, okay? But here's what I would say. As far as husbandry, you are not going to be a good husbandman if you don't put in labor. It takes work. Another thing that the Bible teaches us about a husbandman is it requires patience. Just because you told her doesn't mean it's all getting fixed today. Okay? Just because you sat down and you poured out your heart, this is the way God's leading me, doesn't mean all of a sudden she's on board because you said it. Be patient with her. Give her time to, to come around. Something else that I would say, the vineyard, vineyards in the Bible, they required times of rest. If you didn't let the vineyard rest, the vineyard dies. And there are so many ladies across our country that are laboring for their families and lab they're homeschooling. They're doing all these things for their families and they never get rest and they are dying. It's our fault. The vineyard should not, be, uh, should not receive diverse seeds. The Bible talks about that in Deuteronomy chapter 22. You can't mix what you're sowing. Can't sow righteousness and unrighteousness and expect a good product. An untended vineyard will yield thorns. So if your wife's thorny, <laughs> you might not be paying attention. A vineyard is a place of joy. It's a place where people rejoice in what God has done. And a husbandman is responsible to the owner of the vineyard. The husbandman is simply watching over somebody else's vineyard. That wife is not yours, she's God's. And God assigned you to be her overseer. That's why the Bible uses the word husband when it talks about a man in his relationship to his wife.